From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. I think each of us, when we wake up in the morning, we kind of tell ourselves a story about the life we're living. And you look at yourself in the mirror and you, you try and account for the decisions that you've made. And I think we all lie to ourselves <laughs> to greater and lesser degrees. That's Patrick Radden Keefe. He's a staff writer at The New Yorker who has become known for his works of narrative nonfiction, which are often about criminals and con artists. In recent years, he's written multiple New York Times bestsellers, Say Nothing, about the Troubles in Ireland, and Empire of Pain, about the Sackler family, whose company created OxyContin. Keefe has just published an essay collection that features some of his most acclaimed New Yorker pieces. It's called Rogues, True Stories of Grifters, Killers, Rebels, and Crooks. I spoke with Keefe about the moral questions that guide his work. What causes people to do bad things? And what are the limits of empathy? That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS. We are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen. Hey, folks. This Thursday, July 7th at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time, the brilliant hosts of Now and Then, Heather Cox Richardson and Joanne Freeman, will be joined by Emory African-American Studies professor Carol Anderson for a live taping. Last year, Professor Anderson published the second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America, a book that is all too relevant, especially after the latest terrible news out of Highland Park, Illinois. Heather, Joanne, and Carol will discuss the scourge of mass shootings that have plagued the nation, the Supreme Court's ruling in the New York City concealed carry case, and the future of the Second Amendment. You can tune in on CAFE's social platforms or Heather's Facebook page. You can find a link to get updates for the event in this episode's show notes. Hope to see you on July 7th, 6.30 p.m. Eastern, for this very important conversation. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in a tweet from David Dillard, who asks, why was DOJ surprised by Hutchinson's testimony? Does it mean they weren't really investigating the conspiracy part of the insurrection? Well, that's a great question. Obviously, David is referring to Cassidy Hutchinson, a young 25-year-old White House staffer who testified in, in something of a surprise hearing during congressional recess, which is not something you see all the time. Now, on the one hand, it seems that the January 6th committee was itself 
surprised by Hutchinson's testimony. That might suggest why it was the case that all of a sudden, after not planning a hearing for recess week, they hastily gathered everyone together, brought them back from their home districts, and conducted the hearing, in which Cassidy Hutchinson told a lot of things about Donald Trump's state of mind, about the things that he was advised about, about some of the things that he said. And then there was this controversy over what happened in the presidential vehicle when Donald Trump wanted to go onto the Capitol and his Secret Service detail wouldn't permit him to go forward. There's been some disputing about that, but I think in the end, there's lots of confirmation of her testimony. So in some ways, it was surprising to the committee itself. They maybe hadn't appreciated the potency and robustness of the testimony, which is why they brought her in suddenly. But your question is well put, and it's a question that I can't answer. The reporting is that there are people at the Department of Justice who had not heard this testimony before, who were unfamiliar with it, and who were surprised by it, as you say in your question. And your query really goes to something central that lots and lots of legal experts who are not inside the Justice Department have been debating, and that is what exactly are investigators at the department, assistant U.S. attorneys and FBI agents, doing with respect to an inquiry about the January 6th insurrection? How high up are they going? There is some evidence that they're obviously investigating. There are hundreds and hundreds of people who have been arrested, many of whom have been convicted. But the question persists, what's going on with the people at the top, up to and including the former president of the United States? Now, as I and others have said on the podcast and elsewhere, ordinarily, if there's a basis to investigate, the Department of Justice, along with the FBI, which is a part of the Department of Justice, conduct interviews of people who have relevant information. It is really clear to me that they have not conducted a lot of interviews. They certainly haven't conducted the thousand or so that the committee has. And that's brought into sharp relief when you're talking about this particular witness, Cassidy Hutchinson, who had a lot of important things to relate. And much of her testimony goes directly to the question of what was Donald Trump's intent? What did he want to have happen? Both with respect to testimony about things that he did and also things he didn't do. Notably, in my mind, things like saying, get rid of the magnetometers. They're not here to hurt me. When told about Mike Pence and the chance about hang Mike Pence, he said, maybe Mike Pence deserves it and an assortment of other tidbits of testimony as well. So you can see I'm a little bit avoiding your question. It is not clear to me why the department is waiting or has waited to interview some of these important percipient witnesses. They have asked, as we know, formally, for transcripts of all the depositions and other testimony taken by the January 6th committee. But I'll repeat here what I've said before. That is not a substitute for their own inquiry, for their own investigation, for their own interviewing, because they have a different purpose. The Department of Justice is not sitting around figuring out how to write a comprehensive report. They're supposed to be thinking about how to meet the elements of particular statutes to charge a crime or satisfy themselves that a crime has not been committed. And that's an important component of their obligation as well. So I guess we'll just have to stay tuned. This question comes in a tweet from Mac5605, and it's a question that I and others get all the time. And it's something that is, is a little bit hard to grasp, even if you've been to law school, but certainly if you have not been to law school. And the question is a very basic one, but it's central to all of this debate we have about the insurrection and the blameworthiness of Donald Trump. And the question is, why is intent so important in bringing charges against Trump? So maybe the most basic answer is the particular statutes that might be implicated by his conduct require intent in the mind of the person who's being charged with the crime. And some of those statutes that people have been speculating about include obstruction of an official proceeding, conspiracy to defraud the United States, incitement to insurrection, and then some people think also perhaps seditious conspiracy, although I think that's much tougher 
in a much longer shot. Each of those statutes require proof of intent on the part of the person that you're charging. But that's not necessarily the best answer because it doesn't explain necessarily why intent is important. You can think about it another way. For the most part, our criminal laws require, and this is certainly true in almost every instance of federal criminal law violation, that people are not sent to prison, people are not charged with crimes or convicted of crimes because they've committed an accident or a mistake or some other form of negligence. We require that someone intended to do the bad thing. They may be ignorant of what the law is, but they intended to do the thing. And often it's the case that they need to have intended to do something that they knew was wrong. Now, with respect to a whole category of crimes, like violent crime, that's very easy to show. If someone shoots someone in the head and there's no obvious self-defense principle to stand behind, then you pretty much understand that the person intended to take the life of another person. However, even that proposition is not always true. Take, for example, the case of Alec Baldwin on the set of a movie where unbeknownst to him, according to him and according to the investigation, I believe, he was given a live weapon when he thought it was a prop gun and fired and killed someone. He has not been charged with a crime. Don't believe it would be appropriate to charge him with a crime based on what I know. Why? Because he didn't have the intent to commit the homicide. Intent is important in virtually every crime, including violent crimes. Now, it gets more complicated when you talk about other kinds of things and acts that are not in themselves unlawful. So, for example, some things that a politician does, like setting a meeting or giving a talk or giving a speech or voting a certain way, those things are not inherently unlawful. So to prove that they are part and parcel of a crime, the violation of a federal statute, you have to show what the intent was behind doing those things. The example I often give from my days as a U.S. attorney is insider trading. It is not inherently unlawful to trade stock. In fact, that's the business of a trader. That's the business of a hedge fund. So you have to show what was in the mind of the person. Did they have an intent to use material non-public information to trade on a stock in an unlawful manner? Intent is vitally important to bringing that case. And the same is true here. Donald Trump gave a speech on January 6th. Donald Trump had meetings. Donald Trump made phone calls. None of those things are inherently unlawful. You have to show what his intent was. And it's difficult and it's frustrating, but that's how our system works. And that's why, going back to the first question about Cassidy Hutchinson, her testimony was so powerful that the defense for Donald Trump is going to be and has been and will be that he didn't have the intent. He believed in good faith that the election was stolen, and he was doing things and acting in a good faith manner to try to undo what he thought was unlawful. But as we now know from a lot of people's testimony, and in particular most recently, Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony, that defense becomes more and more implausible. He knew people were violent. He knew law enforcement had been overrun. He talked about getting rid of the magnetometers. People on his staff at the White House and at the Justice Department made clear that certain activities would be unlawful. If you act in a certain way, in the face of all that evidence and all those communications, it's hard to say he didn't have intent. We'll be right back with my conversation with Patrick Radden Keefe. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. The secret to Mint Mobile's premium but affordable wireless plans is that they sell them totally online. Mint Mobile was one of the first to cut out the costs of retail, and they then passed those savings on to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you could say goodbye to an overpriced monthly plan or unexpected fees. You can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. That includes unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed 5G data. Signing up is super easy and painless, and you don't even need a new device when you do. 
To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash preet. That's mintmobile.com slash preet. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Anthony Bourdain, El Chapo, Mark Burnett. What do these names have in common? They've all been profiled by my guest this week, the New Yorker writer Patrick Radden Keefe. Patrick Radden Keefe, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you. So I'm excited to talk to you. I've been excited for a while. You've written a lot of great things, and many of the great things you've written are now in a book called Rogues, True Stories of Grifters, Killers, Rebels, and Crooks. So my first question, Hugh, is uh, about the title, Rogues. Rogues sounds kind of like almost charming and harmless. Did you think also about perhaps Rapscallion? And rascal, like how did you, how why wrote why that R word? Yeah, we we A B tested it, and this is what we came <laughs> out with. <laughs> really, t- tell me about some of that testing. Yeah, I mean, I liked it because the um, you know one sort of through line. This is this is pieces from about a dozen years at the New Yorker. It's twelve pieces, and when you're writing the pieces, you don't necessarily. I sort of like the dilettantism of the job. I get to flip from thing to thing and it never feels as though there's a continuous through line. But in retrospect, there often is. And I am drawn to these big personalities who bend the rules or break them. And so I do think... Or obliterate them. Or obliterate them, yeah. Or often, you know, get the manage to raise the speed limit so that they won't get busted for speeding. Um but the, I think the idea of the kind of force of personality, sometimes with charm, sometimes with none at all, is, uh, is implicit, yeah. In your own words, you talk about your abiding preoccupation with crime and corruption, secrets and lies, the permeable membrane separating illicit and illicit worlds, the bonds of family, the power of denial. Why is that so interesting to you? No, I don't know, to be honest with you. I mean, I, it's, it's one of these things where it, it was not the plan. Um, I, I mean, you, do, you have not written books called Profiles in Courage. Right? <laughs> you, so I'm, just, I'm curious to understand, because exactly. there are people who write those books, right? There are. You write about the rogues. What is yeah. different about you that draws you to those stories? I'm, I'm, I am Mr. Glass Half Empty. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't, I mean, I, occasionally there are, there are, um, you know, there are a few pieces in this collection. I wrote a big story about Anthony Bourdain before he died. Yeah, where yeah, I, that's true. I traveled with him for a year, and he was somebody who I admired in a pretty unequivocal way. There's a story about this woman, Judy Clark, who's one of the leading yeah. um, death penalty lawyers. And she's somebody who, you know, on the one hand, I think what she's doing has great virtue on the other hand, I, I do have complicated feelings about her because I think when you push into it, she's somebody who, you know, in a world in which you have a lot of innocent people on death row, and she's one of the best federal death penalty attorneys, she chooses to represent the worst of the worst, in the words of the Supreme Court. You know, the people you know are guilty and they've done atrocious things. And I could see how, from a kind of utilitarian ethical point of view, maybe that's 
And maybe that's not the best way to um, devote your skills to fighting the death penalty. So there are some of these people I have complicated feelings about. But um, but yeah, generally, I'm, I'm not I'm not when I do a kind of an admiring profile, that's usually the exception to the rule. And when you're covering people who are in the category of rogue, do you do you find yourself deliberately suspending judgment or is that your natural state of being or is that sometimes difficult? Oh, that's such a great question. I so I've I've thought about this a lot because I think that the I think there are there are two phases to the process. So when I write a piece, um, and I should say, I mean, it, it's a, it's a privilege to be able to do this stuff at the New Yorker, where I get four, five, six months, sometimes a year, to work on a piece, and so it's it's over quite a sustained period of time. And in the reporting, when I'm going out and meeting people and interviewing them and gathering the facts, I think it is important to suspend judgment and just be led by curiosity and try and meet people where they live and, you know, where they are. And sometimes, sometimes they're criminals. Sometimes they're people who've done awful things. Um, but I try and go in with an open mind and just hear everybody's story. At the point where I sit down to write, I'm not suspending judgment anymore. I think it's important, at least in the kind of writing that I do, to have a point of view. And when you're dealing with often these ethically fraught situations, I'm, yeah, I'm making all kinds of judgments um, on the page. But but I do think that when you you know when you go out with fight, there's a there's a mass shooter, Amy Bishop, who shot a bunch of her colleagues uh, at the University of Alabama in 2010. Pretty unusual. She was this Harvard-educated woman. Quite unusual to have a woman who's a mass shooter. And it turned out that in the 80s, she had shot and killed her little brother with a shotgun, uh, which at the time was treated as an accident. So when I talked to her, it's not going to do anyone any good for me to just kind of stand in contempt, you know, sort of squint at her in judgment. Um, Much better for me to elicit what I can from her. Yeah. Are there stories you think that are black and white or is everything gray? It's funny. I, you know... um, I wrote a book a couple of years ago about the troubles in Northern Ireland called Say Nothing, which was very much a study in moral ambiguity. That was a situation where I think to the degree that people engaged with the troubles as an issue, they tended to see it in pretty black and white terms. Different people would assign blame and virtue in different ways, but people saw it um, in a kind of monochromatic way. And and for me, everything was more ambiguous. I thought you got to look closely at this and so everything is gray. Everything was gray. And the, the reason I asked the question... What I was going to say is that there's the next book I did was on the Sackler family, and that's all moral clarity. Like, I think that's a pretty straightforward story. Right. Well, that, well, that's interesting. Because so, the reason I was asking was not to understand necessarily your ethical worldview, but rather your journalistic instinct. If a story is black and white, is it less interesting to you? And maybe not. Uh, yeah. I mean, I would say so. Um, I, from a narrative point of view literally just talking about myself and what what would I read on a Saturday afternoon if you gave me an hour. I want something that's going to take some surprising twists and turns. Um, complexity. You like complexity. I like complexity and surprise. And so if you have a story in which, you know, you meet a character and they're totally virtuous on page one and totally virtuous an hour later, um, it's, you're, go, you're going to sleep. You're yawning. Yeah, to be sure. There are people out there like that, and there are those stories should get written, but I, I may not be the guy to do it. I want to ask you a question, and then we'll get into some of the particular stories, because they're fascinating, and you've mentioned a couple. There's a question that I get a lot, and I'm sure you get it, 
as well, given what you write about, why do people do bad things? And I can give you some context. You know, I get asked that because of the job I used to do. And I answer in some measure that obviously there are people who do bad things for different reasons. And there's some uh, who do it for greed. There's some who do it because of love. There's some who do it because they make a mistake and they double down. Uh, and there's some who are just, I think, rotten to the core. How do you answer that question? I think there's a tiny minority that are rotten to the core. Yeah, I agree with that. But I think- But you, um, but, but you think there are, you think there is a category of rotten to the core? I do, though I would say, to go back to that woman, Judy Clark, the death penalty lawyer I mentioned, I mean, her, a very fundamental premise of the work she does is that nobody is born evil, is that something happens. Um, and that, and, and that gives them some, that gives them some innocence? Well, I mean, I think the idea is that they start with innocence and then things happen to them. So, you know, I mean, in any, in any death penalty case, this is kind of where the defense comes in. Often, if they're not in a position to deny that the person's done what they've done, what they say is there's more than one victim in this story, that the perpetrator is himself a victim. Um, and listen, I, I mean, I think that's a, sometimes you can take that argument too far. I think there are people who do evil things. But, um, what's most interesting to me is not people who are, uh, who are kind of innately evil. It's the, what I found is that I think each of us, when we wake up in the morning, we kind of tell ourselves a story about the life we're living. And you look at yourself in the mirror and you, you try and account for the decisions that you've made. And I think we all lie to ourselves <laughs> to greater and lesser degrees. And for most of us, the, the little infractions are small. Yeah, look, I mean, there's data to back that up. We've had such people on the show, Daniel Kahneman and others. People in polls are much more confident when asked questions about their future likelihood of doing good things versus bad things, and they get it wrong all the time, right? Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, I one of the one of the big subjects I'm most interested in is self delusion, um, and the the stories that people tell themselves to justify the things they're doing. There's a, there's a line I often think about, which is actually, it's a, it's a sort of an adage among screenwriters in Hollywood that if it's a decent movie, the villain in the movie doesn't actually think that he's the villain in the movie. Now, he thinks he's the hero of the movie. He, he's watching a whole other movie right. than the one you are. <laughs> right. And, if and he's so, played straight, if he's played straight. Absolutely. And, and I don't, and, and, and I think that that's, that's true, you know, with the people that I write about, I mean, I think that's true for the Sackler family. I think it's true for Chapo Guzman, you know, that these people have a story to tell. Is it true for, cause you mentioned it, is it also true for the Joker in the Batman movies? Well, no, because they're the, you know, you have this, I mean, it's, it's, it's a fictional and, and literally a cartoonish character, right? But who is the, who is sort of emblematic of, of pure evil. It's funny, what I think of is, is the, is Hannibal Lecter and how in the initial books and films, he is this kind of, he's this like inexplicable evil. You don't, you, it's never explained. And then the great mistake that they made was in the later installments, you know, you find out about his terrible childhood, right? And as a, as a fictional device, I think it's much more entertaining and fun to have him just be pure evil. But I do think that in real life, it's often the case when you, when you scratch the surface of somebody who seems that way, that there is some story that got them there. But that's so, that's so interesting because a moment ago, I thought we were saying that, you know, straight up evil people are less interesting because there's less, le because there's less complexity 
But in the case of, of movies, maybe generally or specifically Hannibal Lecter, it's more campy and fun if he's pure evil. Well, so for me, it would be the difference between, um, yeah, I completely agree, but the, but the distinction would be between fiction and nonfiction, yeah. right? That I'm writing nonfiction and the, um, I mean, I'll give you a concrete example. So there's this, there's this story uh, about that woman, Amy Bishop, the, the mass shooter. And when my, when my editor initially brought it to me, um, I said, I have no interest in writing that piece because the psychology of a mass shooter is in the end of the day, just not that interesting to me. I don't care about people's manifestos. I don't really care about the bad things that may have happened in their past. Whatever would drive somebody to pull out a gun and kill a bunch of people. I don't, I don't know that I want to, you know, to dignify it with yeah. a 12,000 word New Yorker piece. Um, and he said, no, 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 that's not the story. The story is that in the 1980s, uh, Amy's mother, Judy Bishop, comes home to their house in Braintree, Mass. One day, Massachusetts, and she's got two kids, Amy and her younger brother Seth. And Judy is the only witness to Amy taking a shotgun and shooting Seth, killing him right there in their kitchen. And when the cops come, Judy says, "I saw the whole thing. It was an accident." And what my editor said was, "That is the story because Amy is always going to be a cipher." But a parent who has two kids and witnesses one kill the other, and then as soon as the cops come, says it was an accident, there's no need to investigate anything here, is a decision that anybody who's a parent would have to kind of pause and think about. What would you do? You've just lost one kid. You're about to lose the other. And so that was the heart of that story. And what do you think the truth is? Well, I mean, that, that, you know, that story gets into all these different uh, kind of versions of the truth. And I think part of the problem is I went and interviewed Judy Bishop and her husband. Um, but I also think they've been living with a great deal of denial for years. Um, I do think that there was an impulse in that case, not just on the part of the family, but actually of the local authorities, the cops in this town, Braintree, to to see that there had been this terrible tragedy that happened and to want to look the other way. To, to say, let's not, you know, it would be cruel to sort of to thrust this situation into the the harsh light of the criminal justice system. Let's let the family grieve and heal on their own. And of course, the downside there is you have somebody who it turns out is quite psychologically unstable. And years later, there's this terrible cost when she shoots a bunch of other people in Alabama. And kills three. Yes. Why do people like... Amy Bishop's mother and others speak to you? Well, they don't always, <laughs> you know? I guess part um, of the question is how, how, how do you go about convincing them to do so? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, I have, so there's a couple of things. I mean, one is that I think that access, I tend, I personally think that access is wildly overrated in journalism. I think that access often becomes transactional in ways that, compromise the story. And so from, pr from pretty early on, from my first pieces at the New Yorker, I always made it clear that I'm going to write the story, whether you talk to me or not, you know, the, the train is leaving the station, you can be on it or not, but, but you not getting on is, is not going to stop the train. Um, and you know, sometimes that, that clarifies things in people's minds. They realize that, um, I, I actually think it, it mostly does make sense to talk. So that's, can, can we pause on that for a moment? Yeah. And 
you know, I have been a public figure myself and dealt with the press. A, pu a public figure who wouldn't talk to me at times. <laughs> so we'll, we'll come to that. We'll talk about our history in a moment because we have a case to discuss, my friend. And I've worked for public figures and we've gotten that phone call, right? Reporter X is doing a story or doing a profile and it's being written no matter what. Would you talk to me? And I've seen other people make decisions depending on who they think the, you know, the, the trustworthiness of the author is or any biases that the author has. Do you think as a general matter, you know, further to what you said a second ago, uh, give some advice to the comms people, the communications professionals of America. Generally good for the principal to talk when the story is going to be written anyway or not? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I would say if we're, if we're talking about comms people, and there's a whole other conversation to have about the way in which repeat players and powerful people and the wealthy and the elite and the kinds of people who have lawyers and comms people to help them with this, the way they deal with it and journalists deal with them and the way the rest of the world does. Because some of the time I'm dealing with these repeat players, you know, I'm writing about a billionaire and I've got some, you know, corporate PR person on the phone. Other times I'm, other times I'm the first journalist somebody's ever talked to in their life. And I try and be somewhat sensitive to that. But but yes, I think it's funny. There's a guy that I met, an old school journalist, who told me a story that he had heard from an old school journalist when he was starting out. And the guy said that what he would tell what he would tell sources is first one in writes the Bible. <laughs> the idea right. being, I'm here with my notebook and my pen, and I don't know a lot about this story. And all I want to do is talk to everybody who knows anything. And of course, I'm going to, I'm going to tell the story as I see it, but you'd be crazy not to realize that if you can talk with me, uh, you may bring me around to your point of view. You may not, uh, but, um, particularly in a situation where you can often set ground rules about where the conversation goes. Yeah. I always think it's a little strange when people don't play ball at all. And there's, I mean, there's any number of examples, right? But it's like, I have a big story in, in the collection about Mark Burnett, who was the reality TV producer who really put Trump on the, on the map. And like yeah. Burnett wouldn't talk to me, but he had these two ex-wives who did. I want to go back to Amy Bishop for a moment, the mass shooter, because, you know, I was reading the story over the last few days and we're recording this, I should say on Friday, June 24th. So it may not drop for a little bit. But one thing that's been on everyone's mind is the horrific shooting in Uvalde. And we had that shooting in Buffalo a few weeks ago. And there were discussions about a bill. It has just passed the Senate, you know, the first advance, you know, modest as it might be, in many, many decades. And there has been a trend, which I tend to support in sort of daily journalism and TV journalism, not to say the name of, not to glorify the name of or publicize the name of the shooter, much less try to understand and get inside that person's head and empathize in any way, shape, or form. And I wonder, having written that story some years ago, uh, and seeing the events of, of recent weeks and months, if you have a thought about that, about, you know, and you said, obviously, that your initial reaction was you didn't want to write that story. But, but given recent events, do you have another perspective on that? I mean, I, you know, so my bias as a journalist tends to be toward openness and and coverage and so i don't i i would um i would be loath to get behind any blanket prohibition on covering any one particular type of story i think it's much more about how responsibly or exploitatively 
you do it. Um, so I do think that there are probably scenarios in which it's it's useful and edifying to write about these people. I think if we as a society are going to, I don't mean to kind of pa pass the buck to mental illness, um, to be sure, uh, big advocate for greater gun control. But, um, but I also think that if we're going to understand how this is happening with such a frequency, obviously a big part of it is that we have more than 300 million guns in the country, but some of it also has to be about the psychology of these people, I think it's a tricky call because you don't want copycat stuff. We know for a fact that they, you know, they they read each other's manifestos and they follow each other on the Internet. But the very existence of the Internet, I think, also begs some questions, right? If the New York Times doesn't write about a shooter or name a shooter, that's not going to stop the, you know, that's not going to stop the information from being out there online for anybody who wants to find it. Yeah, I, I guess the p part of the point is, I mean, there are many points, but one of them is, to the extent people want to engage in copycat behavior, because the prior person who engaged in a mass shooting became something of an evil icon and became famous and became a household name, to the extent that's a motivation, you can help take that away by not giving that person, you know, that kind of exposure. Does that make any sense? It does. I, I agree with the principle. I guess what I'm saying is I think that the, um, un, <laughs> you know, we are now at a point where, um, mainstream outlets uh, are not necessarily where people are going to be going for that information anyway. The information will spread in other ways. Somebody in a, in a review of your book, Rogues, in writing about your account of Amy Bishop, said the need to make sense of Bishop's unraveling becomes a moral imperative for Keefe. And I read that I wondered if that was actually true. Is, is there a moral imperative in this work for you? Or are you merely curious? And is that better or worse? Well, my first caveat would be that if there's anything I hate, it's when journalists talk in grand self-congratulatory terms about the work that they do. Right. Well, this was not you. This was somebody who wrote about your book in The Guardian. I, I know, but I guess I, I guess I... So I don't know that I would describe it as a moral imperative, but I would say I'm, I'm very interested in... Um, I'm very interested in moral issues. I'm interested in how people come to do bad things and how we as a society deal with those people when they do. Um, and I do think that there is something, I think when you do the work and you do it well, I think there, uh, I think there is a morality in it. Um, you know, I think it's a, it's an edifying and important thing to do. So it's not, it's not mere curiosity. I mean, mind you, I like a good story and and that's before I spend six months working on something, I have to know that there are big, interesting characters and compelling twists and turns. So, so certainly curiosity is a part of it. Um, but I think there's a real value to this kind of work as well, a moral value. You mentioned another person that you wrote about in the book, Judy Clark, who among other people represented uh, one of the Sarnaya brothers in the bombing at the Boston Marathon. And there's something interesting that she says and you write about, and it maybe goes to this question that we've been exploring for the last number of minutes, that she's interested in figuring out and being able to convey the key that turns the lock. What does she mean by that? So Judy Clark takes these cases in which there's rarely any doubt about guilt, right? She's, she's often taking on clients where she's ready to stipulate that they've done everything that the state or the federal government alleges they've done, the question is just what should become of them. 
And I was interested in her because she takes on these just really appalling characters. People have done awful, awful things. She represented the Unabomber. She represented Zacharias Musawi. Um, and I was there covering the Boston Marathon bombing trial as she represented Tsarnaev. And her theory, I think, is that what she's trying to do is just humanize her client in front of the jury and let them realize that there is more to the client than the worst thing they did uh, in their lives. And part of the reason I wanted to write that story is that she'd been incredibly successful in making those kinds of arguments and sparing the lives of people throughout her career. But it looked as though it was going to be tough to do that in the Boston case. Um, I don't mean to sound glib, but I, I, I had thought of it as almost like, you know, almost like a, a story about an undefeated athlete and you're going to watch them lose for the first time. And that's, that's what happened with that piece. You mentioned Donald Trump and Mark Burnett, who was the producer of The Apprentice, and you say that he resurrected Trump. What do you mean by that? So at the point where Burnett finds Trump and puts him in The Apprentice, really builds The Apprentice around him, Trump is kind of washed up. He was sort of a, he was sort of a joke in New York. Um, he'd written The Art of the Deal, and that had been a success. But otherwise, he'd been humbled, I think. I mean, it's hard to imagine now, right? But he was he was kind of a carnival barker. He was sort of a punchline on page six. And Burnett wants to build this show around a mogul. Initially, he was going to have a different a different host each season or a different, you know, um, kind of person sitting in the in the board chair each season. Finds Trump. Uh, a lot of people who are involved in the show claim that the, that first season was a little tongue-in-cheek. They say in retrospect, oh, we all knew that Trump was kind of the court jester, but we were going to dress him up as the king. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I see that re-watching those episodes. Right. I mean, you say that. I find that fascinating, that it's supposed to be the case among smart and sophisticated people of intelligence th that this was all done with a wink, and you didn't see it. And I guess one question is, now having seen the Trump presidency— how do you relate those two phenomena? Well, this was what was so fascinating was, was talking to all these veterans of The Apprentice and they would talk about how, you know, Trump was unprepared. He would kind of come in and have to make these big decisions at the end of each week in the boardroom and pick the person who was going to be the winner that week and the person who was going to be the loser but he had never really been keeping track during the course of the week. And so what would happen is he would come in and he would make an impulsive decision, just kind of shoot from the hip. And often what he would be doing is he would he would reward the person who had objectively performed the worst and penalize the person who was the best. And then the editors would have to take the hundreds of hours of footage they had shot and retroactively construct some artificial narrative in which Trump's decision making made sense. And it was this whole notion of, of kind of reality TV as the artificial manipulation of reality. And then, and then, you know, talking to these people who said, it's our sense that in the White House, it kind of works the same way. Like, that's what the National Security Council is doing now, is that Trump makes some shoot from the hip, dumb decision. And they have to recast it in some way. And they have to recast it and, and right. you know, including rewrite history in order right. to <laughs> come up with some framework where it makes sense. When you're talking about the NSA. Right. 
Do you think that without The Apprentice, Trump could have become president? I don't. And do you think a little bit of the reason for that is not just the fame he got and the respect and the rehabilitation he got, as you say, but part of it is in the same way that people thought that his role and his character in The, in the Apprentice was a little bit of an act, that they also thought that his, his doings and musings and outrageous behavior on the campaign trail was also an act, and that some subset of people thought, well, he'll be more normal and mainstream and not as wacko when he becomes president, and, and that that is due and owing a little bit to the character of The Apprentice. Does that make any sense? I do, yeah. And I, and I think on a, on a deeper level, there is a sense in which, um, I mean, Mark Burnett, the the kind of smiley, but in my view, totally nefarious genius behind that show and behind Survivor before that, um, I think he has this kind of callow philosophy that everything becomes entertainment. And so I think there was a sense in which business becomes entertainment and then politics becomes entertainment. And on some level, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm in the, I'm in the news business, right? I, I feel as though the many of us were implicated by this, but the Trump years were pretty entertaining. Politics had never been so mesmerizing. Yeah, and we're now reaping the fruits of that four-year period. And, you know, I should also mention, separately, we'll record something that we're recording this about an hour or two after the Supreme Court decided to overturn Roe v. Wade, which is a direct, you know, consequence of the Trump presidency. There were real consequences of that presidency as opposed to the turn on The Apprentice. Yeah. And, and I think that the, you know, I remember there was, it was during one of the Democratic primary debates in 2020, Trump had threatened to live tweet during this before he was take, kicked off Twitter. He had threatened to live tweet during the debate. And, you know, you had all these different Democratic candidates on stage and everybody's talking about their platforms. And it was sort of, it was exactly the way a, a presidential debate had always looked yeah. <laughs> in this country. People talking about, you know, kind of chopping it up on different policy issues and the, the differences between their platforms. And Trump only tweeted one thing. He tweeted, boring. <laughs> and I thought that really captured it, right? I mean, I think this is, in some ways, if you look at the, the Roe decision today or so many other things that have come in recent years, I, I feel as though this is, we, you know, you treat this stuff like, like it's just entertainment, like that's all it boils down to, and you're stuck with the consequences. Look, this is the main theme of the Republicans and Trump with respect to the hearings that have been that have been going on publicly by the one six committee, um, you know some of it is oh it's a witch hunt or it's cherry picking, but you know what a lot of the theme is what you just said, boring, yawn, it's not interesting as if that's the the as if that's the main that's the metric bad thing about something that's important for the public to know about whether it's you know interesting and riveting or not. I mean I happen to think that it was, but that's that's a consequence of Trump. Do, do you think before Trump? that notable elected Republicans would have used that as the main criticism of these hearings? Boring? Uh, probably not in the sense that so many, of, in the sense that he's kind of, his vocabulary has become the vocabulary of the Republican Party. But I, but I also don't think that he was, you know, I think there are antecedents, right? I mean, I think, I think Sarah Palin plays a, plays a role in this There's story. a direct line, I think. There's yeah. a direct line, yeah. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Patrick Radden Keefe after this. 
Do you think that Trump is putting on an act? And, and I ask that because, you know, it, go, it actually goes to the heart, not just of how our democracy has changed, but it goes to the heart of, of the potential legal case against Donald Trump, right? The idea being he kept perpetuating this idea that the election was rigged and there was all this voter fraud and the members of the committee and other people and maybe the Department of Justice also keeps trying to make the case that there was no reasonable way to believe that there was fraud because you lost all these cases because the people you, you yourself handpicked or the Republicans elected into office found no fraud, no fraud, no fraud, no fraud. But is it possible that Trump is not acting and he believes it or is his act so good that we can't tell the difference? So I think there's a couple things going on here. I mean, I, I do, and obviously this issue of what he believed, I, I assume we'll get to the question of intent, which becomes yeah. really meaningful. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think he's, he's the ultimate kind of situational guy, right? Who's going to believe what he, what he needs to believe, um, in a given moment. It seems very hard for me to believe that he, I mean, the thing is, he had all these people around him. He had his advisors telling his him. People. His people. They're his people. They were him, not yeah, people imposed him, upon him by the Democrats. Right? Telling him there's no there there. Um, but I also, it's funny, I, I had this thought when I was doing my book on the Sackler family, that they, you know, there's a moment late in the book where the, a, a couple of members of the Sackler family are hauled before Congress, and they're questioned by these very angry members of Congress. Um and they seem just comically out of touch. You know, they say, they essentially say, we've never done anything wrong. This is all just a misunderstanding. Um, and I, I sort of had the same feeling about Trump where I feel as though the, from the outside, you would think that somebody who's a billionaire or somebody who's very successful, somebody who's president of the United States, that they can avail themselves of just state of the art advice all the time. But it's, it's often the opposite, I think that they get these yes men. And I think with somebody like Trump, it becomes a kind of learned, it's like a learned behavior, right? After decades of nobody telling him the bad news, I could I could kind of see a scenario in which when he hears the bad news, he doesn't really hear it. Well, he's also in some ways the counterpoint to a belief that I've always advanced and I write about in my book. And that is the credibility and, and persuasive ability depends in part on a thoughtful and intelligent person's uh, ability to sometimes concede things and to admit mistakes. And I think, at least in the narrow uh, world of, of, of legal argument, I still think that that's true, that the thoughtful lawyer who knows that there's a particular argument that's not great or it's not as strong as your first two arguments, you might concede that. And you might say, well, you know, Your Honor, I know that there's uh, you know, a mix of authority on this. We think we're still on the better side of the question. But I've always thought, and that's how I try to conduct myself also, that you know, some amount of concession and reasonableness and apology for mistake makes you a more attractive you know, persuader, at least in a court of law. But I, I also have often thought that that's true you know, in politics and other places. The counter argument is the conduct and behavior of Trump and, and in your view, the Sacklers. What do you make of that debate? I mean, I think it's one one thing to make an argument in front of a judge. I, I I think Trump's Trump's malign genius, like his one great skill, um, was realizing that when you're communicating to a mass audience, particularly via social media, everything gets flattened. Nobody wants to hear your caveats. 
you know, nobody, if you concede anything, you're just going to seem weak. There's this kind of, um, you know, there's this sort of almost like, you know, this kind of simian dominance ritual thing that Trump has always done that, that really works when you're communicating with tens of millions of people, right? Which is, um, I'm right 100% of the time. Everybody else is a, a softie or a liar. Well, it's that approach on steroids, right? Because it'd be one thing if you were a reasonable good faith person, whether a lawyer in court or a politician, and you just happen to be a conservative and you promote your ideas about taxes and about reproductive rights or whatever the case may be, and you don't concede something. But you're arguing sort of in good faith and, and, uh, and sincerely. But if you've transmogrified into a person who is advancing bad faith arguments and lies and, you know, uh, provable lies, and then you don't concede, it's, it's an order of magnitude worse. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. But, but I also think that some, I think there's another dynamic here. And it's funny, it's something I think about all the time, uh, particularly writing about you know, criminal justice issues in a magazine. But, but you've, I'm sure, thought about uh, uh, much more deeply over the years thinking about making a case to a jury, which is that there is a kind of irreducible complexity to modern life. And sometimes the stakes are really high but there's there's also just a degree of complexity that requires people to really sit down and think or absorb um, complicated information before making a judgment of some sort. And I think that part of the appeal, um, you know, if you're if you're, it's funny. I just I just wrote about a case in the New Yorker, a criminal case uh, in the Southern District in which there was a hung jury. And I think part of the problem was it was a a very technically complicated case. And it was just tough to tell the story to a bunch of jurors about what happened in a way that felt legible and where they could be comfortable sending somebody to prison for a long time. I think the great appeal of Trump is he always says, his message is always the same. He says, no, it's simple. It's not complicated. Well, he's right about that. And I I used to give the, you know, the the training lecture on opening statements when I was the U.S. attorney. and, And actually before that also on occasion, and I would say among the various principles, if I ever hear you say, this is a complicated case or it's a difficult case, you're fired. Everything is simple. And it's your job to reduce it, not in the way that Trump does it, not in the way that you know, belies complexity. But at the end of the day, you have to find some way of saying that the case is about lying or cheating or stealing or about greed or, or whatever the, the, the case may be. But if you tell the jury it's complicated, you're in big trouble. I agree. I, I mean, I, I think that's right. And I and listen, it's the same thing that 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 I do in you know in a different context. Right? Is how can I take a very complicated set of facts and and turn them into a story that feels explicable and um, you know and persuasive and credible? But I, I guess what I'm saying is the jury's the fact that what the jury doesn't want to hear is it's complicated. Is I think. Trump's secret weapon, right? Well, it's an understanding he has about audiences, and the jury is just some, you know, particularly specialized audience. Yeah. Speaking of which, before I let you go, we have to talk about the case that you alluded to, one that I oversaw and that you wrote about some years ago, involving insider trading on the part of a, of a man named Matthew Martoma, who at the time worked at SAC Capital, whose principal was Stephen Cohen, and the Southern District of New York went to a grand jury and procured an indictment. Um, 
with respect to Martoma's trading that resulted in, as you point out, and as we alleged, a $275 million profit because he had advanced information about the fate of a particular drug that would treat Alzheimer's. And SAC Capital, on the advice of Matthew Martoma, made the decision to short the stock with advanced knowledge about a clinical trial. And they actually avoid, they actually were able to make $275 million, which is one of the greatest single uh, profitable days for insider trading in the history of the country. What drew you to that story? Am I finally going to get my interview, Reed? <laughs> Here I am. Didn't I talk to you a little bit or I didn't? I, I, I think you... I think you didn't. You did. I think we we talked. Was the case ongoing at the time? Because no, I mean, you know what? No, you did. You did. You did. You did. I think. I think you did in a very careful way. I think. You, yeah, because you're quoted in there. Yeah. So now, now I'm not so as a private citizen. I'm not so careful. But back then, I you know I had exactly. I had guide, I had I had guardrails. And there's you know there's another story in in the collection about the Munzer Al Qasar case, which was also uh, on your watch. But the um yeah in Mart in the case of Martoma the. I'll tell you what was interesting to me, and I would love to hear any any anything you might want to contribute <laughs> yeah. to this. It it was pretty clear that um, there was a huge amount of insider trading that had been going on at SAC Capital. You had uh, a, you know a series of guilty pleas and indictments. Um, it was very very clear that the focus of uh, the investigation that your office and the FBI was doing that that you know the, the target was. Steve Cohen. I, I was, you know, I was able to establish that much in my reporting. So you have this guy who's sitting atop this organization that is that is just a wash in insider trading, and and a, a person who's, you know, the whole place in some ways is kind of marked by his personality. He's controlling a lot, a lot of all the information flows to him. Um, so he would seem like a logical target in an investigation, and then you get this guy Matthew Martoma who's young, he's got kids, he's got a whole life ahead of him. He gets caught pretty much red-handed. I was very fascinated by the background, which is that there was this older doctor, there was kind of a platonic seduction, really, of this old old doctor who had the insider information and gave it to Martoma. So Martoma's busted. Over the course of years, right? Yes. It was a deliberate yes. seduction. That's a good way of putting it. I don't know if we'd said it that way at trial, but he really got the doctor to trust and respect and love him. He did. And, and, and the backdrop, the kind of tragic backdrop for that is that Martoma had always been a sort of apt pupil. He had cultivated mem mentors throughout his life. He was good at that. And Gilman, the old doctor, had had a son who committed suicide. And Martoma reminded him of that son. And so that was, was interesting to me. But I think what everybody expected was Martoma would finally be the one to roll on Steve Cohen. And in fact, on the, the morning that he gets back from <laughs> Michigan with the inside information, but before the trading starts happening on it, he has this phone call. I think it was like an 18 minute phone call with Cohen. And I think everybody's expectation was, here's the guy who will deliver Cohen. And he didn't. And that, that was what drew me into the story, yeah. was why wouldn't he flip? So, yes, I've been think, look, I've been thinking about that particular case for a long time. I mentioned it in passing in my book, and I get asked this question all the time, and particularly in legal commentary, people are always wanting to know, is you know, the Trump Organization CFO going to flip? Is the former Trump personal lawyer going to flip? Is now Roger Stone going to flip? And there are complicated psychological 
things that go on in different human beings' brains, and you can't know. You can't know. But, you know, after doing it for some period of time, you understand what some of the calculus is, and some of the calculus is in the white-collar situation, unlike in some of the more violent crime situations, um, depending on, you know, someone's adverseness to going to prison for a long period of time, often they flip. And a lot of people in these various insider trading cases did flip. That's how we made as many cases as we made. Right. And this gentleman, Matthew Martoma, given the size of the profit that was made, $275 million, was facing a very, very long sentence, as you say, family, young kids, all of that generally enters into the calculus. And he didn't flip. And you have a couple of theories. What were your theories? So I... I mean, I should say, for, for fairness, before... One, one, one theory is, if you want to believe it, is that he wasn't in any position to say anything that would incriminate or substantially assist an investigation into Steve Cohen because everything was kosher and on the up and up. So I'll allow, I just for the record, I want to say that is among the list of menu options, not one I necessarily buy. Yeah. I mean, that, that certainly would be one explanation, not one that I find particularly uh, persuasive either. There's another one, which is the kind of arch conspiracy theory that you often hear in this context, which is that there's some number to count somewhere that Cohen was going to take care of him. And I, I, I would be interested to know your thoughts on that. I never found that credible, if only because it seemed to me that however careful Cohen might be in setting up that kind of arrangement, you know, that's when you, you, you're really exposed, you know, then, then all of a sudden he's, he's, there's a whole, there's a whole raft of things he could be charged with. And Martoma, he'd be basically, say he puts 10 million bucks in an account for Martoma. He's also giving him ammunition to blackmail going for the rest of his life. It, you know, I, you know, I don't know. Obviously that theory comes to mind because Cohen has a lot of wherewithal, but you know, there's no evidence of it. If there was evidence of it, I believe our office would have figured out a way to bring that out. Yeah. Um, you know, transparently. But you know, there's the other theory that I think you mentioned, uh, that there are some people who just don't want to admit their own guilt to their family, to the public. You know, I've had people in different contexts who, who wouldn't plead guilty because they didn't want to get deported and they wanted to take their shot uh, at trial. Uh, or, you know, they just had a certain code, even within the mafia. Yeah. You know, some people, some people won't flip, even if they can save themselves jail time and save their families a lot of heartache and grief. And there have been a couple of other insider, insider trading defendants who maintain their innocence because there's some value in that to them. A couple of them have written books. You should not read them because they're uh, <laughs> bunk. But years later, some of these, some yeah. of these guys are still, you know, they're, they're uh, crapping on me and the FBI agents and everyone else. And even though they had a full and fair trial, they had the best lawyers money can buy. Uh, their motions for new trial were uh, rejected. Their appeals were rejected. Their habeas corpus petitions were rejected, and the industries that they were part of all rejected them on the strength of the evidence. There is some value in, for them, after years in prison, to proclaim their innocence, say the system is corrupt, and that we were on a witch hunt. And this, and and listen, this goes back to what I said at the outset, which is it all comes back to, you know, what's the story you tell yourself when you look in the mirror about the the life you're living? What's the story you tell your wife and your kids and your parents? And in in the case of Martoma. I, you know, I had this, I didn't end up interviewing him per se. I had this very strange arrangement where I went in to meet with him, but his wife ended up talking with me. So he was in the next room and I interviewed her for hours and she would periodically leave and confer with him and come back. 
but also his family and her family had been right there in the front row every day of the trial when I covered the trial. And they were all very convinced um, that he was getting railroaded, that he was totally innocent. And so the conclusion that I came to was that it was it was the only way he could flip was to plead guilty and that it was worth going to prison for eight years, you know, for, for like much of the childhood of his kids. It was worth it for him if he could maintain the illusion, both in his nuclear family and also, you know, with his parents and his in-laws with whom he was very close, that he was an honorable man. Yeah, look, I think that's very plausible. You know, Matthew Martone was not born with that name, and the story about why he gave himself a different name, you know, is arguably relevant to his character, is it not? It is. I mean, this was part of what was so fascinating for me about this story is that it turns out, so he grew up in Florida, um, in an Indian family, uh, Indian Christian family, part of this um, this particular uh, Indian Christian sect. And um, his parents put a great deal of pressure on him to succeed. They really wanted him to go to Harvard. And he was, I think, valedictorian. By the way, same, same. Yeah? Yeah, my, I, I am also from an Indian American family with a lot of pressure well, yes. to do well, and in particular to go to Harvard. Harvard in particular, yeah. Well, well, let me ask you this, Preet. But I, I did not cheat at school. <laughs> Can you relate to this moment with, with which Martoma had, which is that when he didn't get into Harvard, and only got into Duke. His father made a plaque and gave it to him for his birthday, and it said, son who shattered his father's dreams. <laughs> you know, my parents listen, uh, and they would have been proud of me no matter where I went, And and uh, but, you know, they had high aspirations. Yeah. I, I would not have gotten such a plaque. But you can see how, so then he goes, you know, he ends up, he goes to Duke, he does well at Duke, he ends up going to Harvard for law school. His father's very proud. Does he withdraw the plaque? I, I, I wonder. You know, I wonder what happened to the plaque. But the but his, his father's definitely proud. He drives him all the way from Florida up to, to Cambridge um, when Martoma starts. And what ends up happening is that it, it emerges when he's at Harvard Law School that he had uh, faked his transcript. He doctored his transcript when he sent it off for federal clerkships. I thought this was so amazing too. I mean, it takes a certain, you know, they, Steve Cohen, when he, when he interviewed people would allegedly, you know, it was said that he, when he interviewed people to come work at SAC Capital, he would say to them, what's the riskiest thing you've ever done? Because he liked yeah. people who took risks. <laughs> and I thought, pretty risky to, you know, send off uh, a doctored Harvard Law School transcript to- To federal judges. 20, 24 federal judges. Um, so he was, he was caught. And then there's this kind of amazing sequence when he's trying to prove, he said he had withdrawn from the clerkships and he sent the email at such and such an hour, but it looked like he might have backdated the email. And there's this, he brings in a computer forensics company to do a report to show that he actually had sent the email before he found out that he'd been caught. So it turns out the computer forensics company was his own company. It was <laughs> a like business he had started. So the fraud kind of compounds. And he ends up changing his name and going to Stanford Business School. Yeah, because people don't check. They don't. I And I was not able to get a straight answer. Stanford subsequently stripped him of his degree, but I wasn't able to get a straight answer from them about, you know, what, what the story he was telling was when he applied, whether there was like a year at Harvard Law School and then he left or whether he just he just completely erased it from his transcript. So what do you make of the guy? I mean, I think, to be honest with you, so, so many of these stories, I think the Sackler story is somewhat this way too. I think they, 
I think I think the American dream is a seductive and occasionally quite dangerous thing. I think that um, you get certain kinds of people who have a whole family depending on them to to make their mark, to chase whatever the brass ring in question is, to accumulate great wealth. And um, I think for some people that pressure is too much. I think sometimes people just don't really have the, they don't have enough of a, a kind of core ethical decision-making apparatus that they, that they can see the left, the left, right parameters that the rest of us try most of the time to live between. Um, and I think that's what happened with Martoma. And the interesting thing is he's out of, he's out of prison now. Uh, and I don't know what his life is like now. I don't know what he's going to do. Maybe he'll change his name again, but, um, but I'll bet that within his family, you know, there's a story that his wife told me, which is that her, I may get the detail wrong. It's in the book. I believe it was her grandfather, um, had worked alongside Gandhi and had had a, he had sort of been, been kind of, I mean, I don't think he actually died, but he like, he got very sick. He was, he was sort of in the family mythology. He had been martyred in the cause of Indian independence. And they talked about Matthew the same way. There was this sense of Matthew as like a, like this guy who did the right thing. All he ever wanted to do is do the right thing and take care of his family and never broke the law and never lied to anybody. And that the state just crucified him. And it wouldn't surprise me if that's still the story today. Look, and if that's true, and he suffered his time, um, you know, without too much anguish, that answers maybe the question of why he made that decision some years ago. If he was in possession of helpful information, incriminating information, he can look back and say, I, I kept my family believing in me, notwithstanding all this other stuff. Yeah. And to me, and to me, that's, you know, in, in terms of what I find interesting about these stories and the unexpected turns they take, I think people from the outside said, why isn't this guy flipping? Why is he protecting Steve Cohen? And I think the much more likely scenario is that it had nothing to do with Steve Cohen. He was protecting yeah. his family. Look, there's another example that I give in my book, and I, I think you make reference to it perhaps in the insider trading investigations we did where there was, there was somebody who had been in a hedge fund and he literally sees the FBI agent coming to approach him in the parking lot. And he basically flips like on the spot and agrees to wear a wire and not just a wire to record anyone. He wears a wire on his best friend. Yeah. Like immediately. Right. So that's the other end of the spectrum. This is Noah Freeman. Yes. It's Noah Freeman. My high school classmate, Noah Freeman. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. He, he, wouldn't talk to me for the piece. So it's a complicated, it's very complicated. It's very complicated and people have different motivations. And, you know, he, and he said, I believe at the time, you know, I, I think either he, he just had a child or was about to have a child. And the, and the, the thought of going to prison for him was too much to bear. Right. And any way he could reduce that possibility, he embraced immediately. Yeah. I mean, I think I, it, to me, the way it was, it was described to me by people who worked for you at the time and, and others, uh, in the FBI and people who'd worked on these cases is that it's, you know, is that in building those kinds of cases, it was a great advantage that these, that these guys were such soft targets. And, you know, in Martoma's case, he, I mean, it, it was almost kind of a guy, almost kind of a comical thing in, in my piece, but, you know, in Martoma's case, when the FBI shows up down in Florida, the, the first thing they say to him is, we know what you did at Harvard. 
uh, not he thinks they're coming after him for the uh, for the insider trading, and they say we know what you did at Harvard, and um, he fainted, and you know Michael Steinberg, another SAC guy, uh, also fainted in court. I mean, I think it's it's. Um, well, I used to say, you know, when people were talking about the difficulty of making certain kinds of cases, you know, the logic is that in white collar cases, people are more likely to flip because, for want of a better word, they're softer. I say, you know, I guarantee you, no Crip or Blood or Gambino family member upon being approached by law enforcement, fainted. Right. They didn't. Yeah, and the, and the, and the prospect of, um, I mean, listen, from a, from a larger systemic point of view, I, I think this is, this is a, huge, a huge problem in our country, right? But the, the notion that uh, prison is not a place for those kinds of people um, is, you know, I think it's a, that's a pretty poisonous idea, but I think it's one that animates the kind of lives they live and and often the choices that the criminal justice system makes about how it pursues these cases. We've gone long, but you know, there's one question I have to ask you that I've asked other people, and I think you're, you're in some position to offer a theory. So we're talking about all the things that people do that are bad and get them in trouble, whether they're criminal or immoral or otherwise terrible. What is the characteristic or personality trait that you think that people who possess it cause them to be less likely to stray and break the law or break the rules. I'll, I'll offer an answer. I'll offer one of the more interesting answers I've gotten to that question. I was interviewing Michael Lewis some years ago, and he, you know, excavates some of these same issues of people, you know, going astray. And he said people who are self-possessed, who draw their self-worth from within rather than from without. Yeah. Does that sound right to you? It does. I mean, I, and it's funny because what I was going to offer fits with that probably to some extent, which is, um, I think people who are honest with themselves. Yeah. I think like again and again, I see these situations where I think self-awareness, it's, it's self-awareness, but it's, but it's, but it's a, that it's, it's the sort of little incremental lies that people tell themselves about the small transgressions that those can snowball. And like, by the time I'm writing about you, it's really snowballed, right? It, it's, it's got, it's gotten really bad. But I think for a lot of people, there are these little deviations. And I think just just a kind of um, a, I mean, I think about this, I'm sure in any family, this would be true. But I have family members who are more prone to denial, don't want to hear about it. You know, they'd rather kind of stick their heads in the sand. And then other family members who are bracingly honest about themselves and others in a way that is uncomfortable sometimes. Um, but I think if what you're trying to do is navigate a a somewhat righteous path through life. That's a useful attribute. I believe that's true. Patrick Radden Keefe, thank you for coming on the show. The book is Rogues, True Stories of Grifters, Killers, Rebels, and Crooks. Please check it out. Thanks again. Thank you. I want to end the show this week by remarking on a couple of anniversaries. One is a personal one, and the other one, a national anniversary. So 10 days ago, June 27th, marked the 52nd anniversary of my family, the Barara family, coming to the United States of America from India via the UK. I was only a year old. As I mentioned before, we settled in Buffalo, New York, a place that was much colder to what my parents were used to. And we came for all the reasons that immigrants came then, and come still. We came for a better life. 
We came for opportunity. We came to improve our futures and live in a country that has been a beacon of freedom for everyone all around the world. It was a very different time. Nixon was president. The Watergate break-in was two years away. Roe hadn't yet been decided. It was three years away. The World Trade Center was not yet complete. That also was three years away. The Vietnam War was raging. There was unrest all over the United States. Springsteen had not yet recorded either Born to Run or Thunder Road, which is my favorite song. It was a crazy time and a difficult time, although I was too young to appreciate it in the moment. Things seem very different now. And that brings me to the national anniversary. This past Monday was Independence Day, the 4th of July, and it did not seem as happy as it has in past years. Part of the reason was the horrific shooting in Highland Park that took seven lives and counting. Part of it also is, of course, the creeping feeling that America, the land that my parents came to, brought me to, is becoming less free, that the Supreme Court has been hijacked, that democracy itself is in peril. And I've seen many of your comments on social media and elsewhere saying that you weren't celebrating Independence Day, that you didn't feel like celebrating, that there was nothing to celebrate. I get that. I get sad and depressed too. In fact, I earn part of my living by reading these decisions and following the news and trying to explain it to other people. I can't even escape it, even if I wanted to. It's part of my job. And I talk to my parents about what's happening to the country, and they feel it's not the country that they came to, or it's at risk of becoming not the country they came to. But then we think to ourselves, we didn't come all this way, go through so much, to give up or quit or abandon our hope. The moment you start to feel that way, that's when America needs you the most. That's when your country most needs your love and attention and patience and energy and fighting spirit. There was a great and moving piece in the New York Times a few days ago. It was written by Margaret Renkel. And she talks about this feeling about the flag and about the country and about what it feels like with the Supreme Court deciding things the way that it has that go against the will of the people. And she says this, quote, It should not be so unbearably hard for justice to prevail. And justice finally gained should never again be at risk. But this is the country we live in. The fight for freedom will never be over. And God help me, I will not be one who gives up. This is my country too, and I will not surrender it to a vocal minority of undemocratic tyrants. End quote. Neither will I, and neither should you. God bless America. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Patrick Radden Keefe. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669 247 7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. 
The technical director is David Tattashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. The CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Sean Walsh, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. <laughs>